The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Assalamu alaikum, this is Noor Khufan, and you are listening to this Muslim Girl podcast. This podcast was created for myself to carry dialogues of open communication for Muslim women by Muslim women about various topics, but it also serves as a resource for women to have a platform to share their narratives of their successes, their struggles, and their experiences. More now than ever, Muslim women are being underrepresented and misrepresented in our communities and in the media. It is time that we created a space where we can hold the microphone and be able to truly and genuinely speak our truth. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me yet again. I'm really excited about sharing this episode with you. Today I have with me Maryam Mohammed. She's a 24-year-old Somali Canadian American and she's someone who has faced a lot of unique set of challenges growing up from her father's deportation to her naqabi mother being the sole provider of her family as well as just many identity dilemmas. She says that in these challenges, it has made her a better person. The person that she is today is a young Muslim American female who is a recent college graduate trying to navigate life with an interesting life scope of experiences and understanding. So welcome, Maryam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, So I wanted to start off with just maybe a little background about yourself and if you can... Briefly describe to us what life was like, you know, before we get into the story about your father's deportation and, mm-hmm. the, you know, the nuance of what was going on. Um, yeah. I, I want to know a little bit about what life was like for you and your family prior to that. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, I was born, so as some of my older siblings, um, in Toronto, Canada. Um, so four of us were born there and the rest were born in San Diego. So it was two. So I'm the third oldest of six children. So that is pretty average for a Somali family, actually. Um, from there, uh, just to give you extra background, my family came to Canada prior to the Somali war. Uh, they weren't really refugees. They came for economical and educational opportunities. So I would consider my parents very fortunate to have missed the bullet of the, like, the civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, they came there. My dad was working. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, it was a very, how can I say the word, very like common household. Mm-hmm. You know, although they are very conservative, practicing Muslim, you had the dad that was earning the uh, the breadwinner. The mom was a stay-at-home mom. That was basically baking pie <laughs> yeah. in the evening kind of thing. So uh, this is the household we were raised in. Uh, we moved to San Diego, which was kind of a culture shock if you think about it, because Toronto is nothing like San Diego. Mm-hmm. It is. We have all the seasons over there. No seasons here. Um, <laughs> no snow. It, no snow. Uh, a lot of the buildings are shorter. <laughs> we're looking around, we're like, where are the buildings? And then someone explained to us, oh, we have earthquakes here, you know? Yeah. We don't have the opportunities to have tall buildings. But aside from that, 
uh, we had regular life. Uh, I would consider us almost in the middle class range. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family was really big on education, so we had private tutors a lot of the times. We went to private uh, elementary school. Mm-hmm. So isn't that crazy? So thinking about it now, like from a retrospect standpoint, after everything happened, I can almost say we lived almost a privileged life. My dad really was trying his best for us to get the most out of the American dream. He wanted us to be in school. He wanted us to go to college. He wanted us to have a career path. Every opportunity you can think of an immigrant wants in America, Mm -hmm. you name it, my dad wanted it for us. And I know that's very common in a lot of immigrant households, in any household at that. Everything was great and dandy. Like You had both parents there, loving parents that cared about you, that supported you in everything that you did. And their presence was so important to obviously any child, like being that I take in child development now, it's so vital for a child to have two parents in their life mm-hmm. in terms of their self-esteem, in terms of everything. They need both parents' presence. Like, I remember my mom and dad would just watch them and we'd be in awe because it was such a team. And they worked so beautifully together. And you can see that they were trying to build a life that was so beautiful for us children. Now, looking at it from a young adult standpoint my mom was so because you can tell when when a child comes from a loving household when they have certain like self-esteem and morals and like mannerism my parents are so big on raising us right it was so key to who we are today so I remember we would go places with my mom and everyone would tell her like what do you tell your kids please tell us we want to tell our kids the same thing (laughs) and it wasn't necessarily what she was telling us it was she led her life in a way that we wanted to by example, like whatever my mom and father did, it was like they were our, what is it called, uh, role models. You know how people look at celebrities and all these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we looked at them. I knew I could basically do anything I needed to do because I had their support and I had their approval and their validation. As a child, I don't think I needed it from anyone or anything else. So then mm-hmm. fast forward. Yeah, what fast happens? forward. Like, tell us how did everything I mean, everything Mm -hmm. changed and all because of Mm -hmm. So post 9-11, I would consider like the government were doing some kind of sweeps, like basically rounding up all the potential people that they they perceived as terrorists. And my dad was one of the targets or victims, I would say. Uh, On the eve of New Year's of January 2004, my dad was arrested. So I will set up the setting for you as to what happened with him. I remember, actually, there's a tape of it out there. Literally, we were in the courthouse and we watched the tape of him getting arrested. My dad basically walked into a lion's den without his knowledge. Um, In January 2004, he goes to a government building um, to take his oath for citizenship. And when you're taking your oath, they do take a video of you taking the oath. He doesn't know anything that's going on. He's blindsided completely. And I remember... The door opens and all these FBI agents literally rush through the door and uh, what is it called? Have They have their guns drawn and they're telling him, put your hands up, put your hands up, put your hands up. You're under arrest, you're under arrest. And he's like, for what, for what, for what? And that's when they apprehend him. I don't even know if they even read him his Miranda rights at this point. Wow. And he doesn't know what's going on. No, nobody knows what's going on. He was but of course, to receiving his citizenship. This close, he went through every other process. Everything's like fine. Everything's okay. The last step of the way when he needed to get his citizenship, uh, he gets arrested. And it almost, you kind of think about it, like it probably was a setup this whole time. 
they probably didn't want him to get citizenship since the beginning. And they just wanted him to go through the process and arrest him then and there. And it was very dehumanizing and almost humiliating how they did it. Mm -hmm. Oh, keep in mind that at the same time, how my family found out or got word about my father's arrest was my mom dropped us off at school. Some of us were in middle school at the time and some of us elementary. I think one of us, the youngest, was in uh, preschool, actually. Uh, there's a van that was sitting outside of the car. The, the, we have a long driveway. Mm-hmm. It's black van, two big black vans. My mom doesn't know what these, what, who they are, who's driving or anything. She just parks her car on the side of the house, and she's walking up to the door. Then all of a sudden, another SWAT team is um, rushing her as well. And they have their guns drawn, and they're yelling at her, you need to open the door, you need to open the door, or we're going to knock it down. My mom is in, like... You know when you go out of your body? That's what she said. She said she was watching herself. She had an out-of-body experience. Exactly. She was just watching herself. She didn't know what to do. Keep in mind that this is not just a regular handgun out there. These are fully clothed, like, semi-automatic guys with, like, bulletproof vests. They don't have their face showing. They have those little masks over Mm -hmm. them. And this is, like, a a mother that just went to drop off her kids, just picked up some little groceries for lunch. Was this the same day? This is the same day. Coincidental, right? The same thing happened to my dad in the office. They're raiding your house. Mm -hmm. And and the same thing. I don't think they showed my mom a warrant. You don't have rights when you're considered a terrorist. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Why do you think they targeted your father? I think they targeted my father because he was... The main reason why the Somali community here in San Diego got established, he was a community advocate, leader, um, he was super educated, and I think that was one of the main reasons why he was targeted. Keep in mind, like, if you take out the chiefs, then all the Indians will get in line, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And being that they, they basically made an example of my father, everyone else took note, like, oh my gosh, the government's kind of after us, which obviously in all the cases on the DOJ, the Department of Justice would say, Basically, the United States of America versus Omar Abdi Mohammed. That's his full name. It's kind of crazy to think about a whole government came after you. For what? What, what, did um, they, what did they, what was their reasoning behind? So their reasoning was behind, uh, behind it was uh, he had this money transfer system, which in Somali we call it Hawalat. He basically sends money back home. Obviously, we're first, most of us are first generation here, and a lot of our families are in Somalia, Ethiopia, Yemen, you name it. So we have an obligation to our families back home and we send them money. And they said somehow the business that he was partnered with, whatever, which obviously he had a partner and other people connected. It's like a big line of things. Oh, just to summarize it, the money transfer system that he had running somehow funded or had a connection to funding the attacks on 9-11. Does that make sense? Yeah. Some of the money that was laundered around and how the government tracked it, it went all the way back to the the pilots that hijacked. The, obviously, the people that hijacked the plane and basically ran it through the uh, Twin Towers. Those, those, all those allegations were just allegations or lies. None of it was true, and my father was acquitted for it later on. How long after he was arrested and charged was he acquitted? I think it was about a year. And we went through, basically, that's when hell started for everyone. Um, we don't know anything about the court systems. We don't know what this is. Obviously, we were too young at the time to even help our mom. Were you able to keep this? Was this, like, something only maybe your community knew about? 
like the San Diego area? Was this something blown up? Like, oh no, every well, we had NBC, CNN, (laughs) you name it, Um, NPR, yeah, KPBS, you name it. Everyone really had a lot. uh, There's a lot. There's a huge um, coverage of it. Um, in in terms of our communities, the Muslim community, whether it was the Somali or at large, we needed everyone to uh, to know because we needed their support. Being that now my mom is a recent single parent, she has no job experience. All she, she was a stay-at-home mom, and she was a part-time college student because she was getting her, I believe, AA to become a nursing student or a nurse. Mm-hmm. And then she was basically preparing that this on the side as she was basically raising us full-time. And that basically shook everyone's world. And I can't think it shifted our reality coming from a middle-class Somali family or just any family to having a single parent and basically being dirt poor and having, keep in mind, they froze all my dad's assets. My mom, and she couldn't get access to any of the joint accounts. She mm-hmm. had no money for even milk that day. It was that crazy. All we had was the food in our fridge and the cash in the house and the cash we had on hand. We had to figure everything out. And obviously, since our community kind of like basically came together like in such a beautiful way and help us, they helped us find a lawyer and they're like, don't worry about the lawyer fees. We'll help raise the money and funds. So we had a lot of fundraisers and mm-hmm. a lot of events, basically raising awareness as to what happened to him. And so it doesn't happen again. It's just to be targeted like that and basically profiled. Um, we had a lot of protests. I remember making signs for my, the protests, basically saying, free my father, you know? Wow. It's such a crazy reality because you see this person as your... How old were you? Your, I think at the time I was... Well, or 11. Wow, you were young. So it's you very even, young. Did you fully understand what was going on? Well, I remember the first day going to court. And I remember my dad was was being hauled into the courthouse in chains in an orange jumpsuit. And I looked at to my sister and I scuffed. I said, wow, this is so stupid. This is like, I can't believe this is happening. You know, they're wasting their time kind of thing. I just thought, oh, this is a mistake, and everything's going to go back to normal. Yeah. My dad's not a criminal. You know, they'll know it. You know, the judge is going to know. Oh, the jury's going to know. Uh, little did I know I was in for, I think about 2004 to six, almost two and a half years going to court, dealing with lawyers, prosecutors, um, people being cross-examined, the whole nine, so evidence. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about these two and a half years, can you... Because I know you had said that I think it, like after a year he got acquitted for those charges, but then there was something else following that that led up eventually to himself choosing to self-deport, correct? Um, uh, leading up to it, I just think that the conditions that my father was being held in was pretty insane. Uh, I think that anytime you're labeled any type of terrorist or um, anti-America, you're going to be treated like dirt. And this was basically a lie perpetuated by the prosecution team for whatever reason I do not know until this day. I would love to meet the prosecutor. I know his name is Steve Schultz. And I just want to ask him, why? I know everything happens for a reason, but what was in my father? Why did you go after him? And what was the interest that you had in him? Because there's a lot of community leaders, obviously. He's not just one person. Um, I think that prison is never easy on anyone, whether you're going there just for just jail or for a long period of time. Um, he served two and a half years, and my dad would say that he's never, he can't compare it to anything he's ever dealt with in his life. Keeping in mind that he's, this is a grown man, and my dad is like, when I look at him, I think of like 
an alpha leader, macho machismo kind of guy. Like mm-hmm. he's very a guy's guy. But to see him almost broken by this judicial system was a lot to handle. And my dad was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't be going back into this um, courthouse and be promised all these things just to be um, heartbroken again. Like everyone's playing games at this point. So if they acquitted him from those charges, mm-hmm. then what was it that, what else did they have against him or what was it that ultimately led to? So it went from a federal courthouse kind of thing, like federal charges to immigration charges. And immigration charges was almost something like, if it wasn't him, if his name was Omar Abdul Muhammad, it could have been corrected over a phone call or just an office visit at your your local INS office. But being that he was such a high-profile case, I think that the prosecution team really wanted to make an example out of him and were so upset that they couldn't find any further evidence or any way to pin him with something as crazy as 9-11. So I think the mistake what happened with INS was my dad, when he was first coming to Toronto, um, me in San Diego, um, he listed all his children. And he, I have an older half-sibling. I think he's in, like, his mid-30s right now. Um, and from a previous marriage. In the paperwork he wrote, he was born in Can- uh, Kenya, but somehow the immigration office in Canada, Canada switched it to... Uh, who's born in Toronto, Canada, like the rest of us at the time. Mm-hmm. A simple mistake like that, because my dad was coming here to San Diego to get his uh, uh, permanent resident or his working visa to bring us all here. So everything was fine and dandy until that mistake wasn't corrected and my dad didn't notice it. Mm-hmm. If he was a regular immigrant coming from any other country, or any other background that wasn't Somali or even religiously Muslim, it would have been fine. But being that he was Muslim and he was a Somali, that was two red flags in itself. And the immigration officers, I, I think they gave him a plea deal. I can't go into the details of that plea deal, but he didn't take it. And at that point, my dad was like, this is just exhausting. He's like, I can't further exhaust my family or my community in terms of resources. I can't. He wanted a way out. He was like, I'm done with this. I'm going to self-deport. And I know the prosecution team wanted him to stay and fight this fight that they've already, like, checkmated him on. Mm-hmm. He he did. He wanted to checkmate them ultimately and say, you know what? You're not going to imprison me indefinitely and play with my life, you know? I'm going. I'm out. I'm going to live my life and just take me back home. And here, so he did. I remember visiting him the last day to the prison household, the prison place. And we walked in, and my dad was saying, you know, we'll see each other again and don't worry, everything's going to be fine and you have your mother and your communities here and everyone's backing you guys and everything's going to work out for the best, inshallah, God willingly. And that was the last and time you saw him? I the mean, last up conversation until I've, now that you're visiting him and you, you, you have to leave the country. Over 11 years, I haven't seen my father. I've only seen him this summer. Oh, I didn't know that. I knew that you went to go visit him because we were going yeah. to record. Um, you know, we've yeah. been talking for months and you told me mm-hmm. that you were going to go travel, but I didn't know that that was the first time you had seen him. It was the first time in 11 years and that the last how, conversation how I had with him like, here in San Diego. I didn't know this, Mariam, you didn't tell me. <laughs> how, how I'm was... sorry. It was full circle, you know? I think I asked him a lot of questions as to what happened in the courthouses and just to kind of relive everything. Especially as an older woman now, you can 
mm-hmm. maybe understand and you're more Unders- curious. Understand more. Yeah. Obviously, we're all there in the courthouse just to support him and to show that his family was here and present. And the jury, we're all looking at the jury like, you do know he has a family here that he was a sole provider for and that I'm his daughter, this is his son, this is his wife. And that regardless if we look different from you, we still share the same experiences in life yeah. and we still go through the same emotions and that we are human just like you. And isn't that kind of sad that we have to even put it that way for just the general populace of America to understand where we're coming from as Muslims? Mm-hmm. That's very... It's very unfortunate. Yeah, so I remember my father telling me um, his experiences in prison and how a lot of people would target him and attack him and how it was basically a hellhole. Was he being like, was he mm-hmm. facing like racial slurs or were people being racial slurs? The correctional officers would get other people to come after him. Like it was really crazy. Like it could be a movie almost. And I was telling my father, like, you need to write a book. You need to write a book of what you've you've experienced because this is absolutely insane. And being that he was a law abiding citizen all his life, he has not a criminal record for, for for anything, whether it was in Canada, back home, or America. He's not a violent felon per se you know mm-hmm. and you're now in a room full of murderers and rapists and all these other crazy people it's a story it's definitely a narrative i think Why you're looking at yeah so 11 years is a long time though every time i think about it i'm like wow i can't believe i waited this long it's not waiting i would have loved to see my father sooner it's just i didn't have the funds mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i'm glad that and you then, finally got to see him and things felt you know full circle yeah. for you and yeah I mean, I honestly, I, I can't imagine what you've been through, what your family has been yeah. through. I'm really interested in knowing or understanding a little bit more about your mother's experience because I'm sure it was difficult on so many levels for everyone and individually, like, it, it would be different for the different age ranges between you and your siblings and stuff. But for her to, one, lose her partner and, you know, the person yeah. that she was relying on providing for her and her children, like... What was her experience and how how she had been able to handle it? And what's what's life for, like for her now? Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, You'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. 
And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. SubhanAllah, where can I even begin? In that time frame, my mom, I can, I can say that, to be honest, she was affected the most. Because like you said, she lost her partner and obviously... Her, what is it called? Her, her main source of support emotionally, uh, physically, financially. Mm-hmm. She was all alone with six kids to raise. That I wouldn't wish that upon anyone. You know, you think that when you have children, you're gonna have your partner there with you to raise your children with and have like this ha- happy ever after life. That's the that's the, the the image that we always project into into reality, or into our minds. Um, she was mourning a lot. Of, she was mourning his loss, and she's mourning the fact that of the life that she used to have. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And she lost that on a lot. You and I know that it. it I wouldn't say it still affects her to this day, but the remnants of the effect still is there. Oh, I'm sure. Like there's, yeah. you know, you cope and you kind of adapt, and there's a new normal. But mm-hmm. I don't imagine that it's not something she doesn't think about every day. Yeah, like what could have been if he was here. Would, I, would my sons been different or would this have been this way or in X, Y, and Z? Did I raise them right um, yeah, the being that we were her, so I'm young? Sure enormous. She's mm-hmm. now responsible for providing yeah. and raising you. Yeah. And if she, if we mess up, did she fail as a parent? In terms, you wouldn't feel that as a parent if you had another partner. Does that make sense? Obviously, you would have that feeling, but you would share it with someone else. It was kind of like that bond. Oh, did we fail? We, we're together in this. I'm not alone in this. We say this word in Somali. We say, basically, you know, when you take a, a rope, like when you're doing karate, and you tie it around your waist? Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a symbol of, like, I'm going to continue, and I'm going to go further. I'm going to not give up. Regardless of the circumstances, whatever it might be, whether, whether, what the situation may be, I'm going to support my children. I'm going to be there all. I'm going to do everything that I can do with God's will, you know? Was your mom ever pressured, and I don't know if this is something that yeah. in the Somali community might happen, but I know in my community, if something like this happens, usually the woman is pressured to either, like, basically, you, you, you go where your husband is, and so you pick up your life, and you go with him. Was she ever pressured to follow your dad, or? No, there was actually a worse reality. What they wanted to do, um, both sides of the families, my mom's side and my father's side, was split us up. As six kids, you go to this aunt, you go to this uncle, you go to this aunt. And keep in mind that I have family all across the states. And well, what was the it, point of that? Well, what would breaking you? Just so from? she could stay here and go through. This is before his deportation. This was a conversation that was had, and I remember hearing it, and it was so something so scary. And I remember looking at my siblings like, "Are we going to be split up?" Um, they were saying, you know, you go through the whole trial with your husband, have the community support, but you don't want your children going through this because it's going to be something extremely traumatic and extremely crazy. Like, you want to split them up and give them the, the closest thing to a normal, functional, okay. that's the word I'm looking for, a functional household. Okay. And 
after he gets deported, we'll see where everything stands from there. But we're going to give guardianship to these um, aunts and uncles. And everyone was willing to take us in, which was a very sweet and beautiful thing that they were willing to do. But at the same time, it's tragedy. Like, I won't get to see my younger sibling or I won't get to see my older sibling because I'm all the way somewhere in Minneapolis. And there's somewhere over there in Ohio or uh, Toronto or X, Y, and Z. You get what I mean? Yeah. It would I have definitely, that. I think, I mean, I get the intent behind it, and I understand that they were trying to, um, you know, preserve, I guess, the quality of life for you guys in this time where it was just mm-hmm. very hectic. But for me, I'm just thinking about it, and I'm like, I think that would just, like, your, your family's already kind of destructed a little bit. I think it would yeah. just even add more to it. Like, yeah. even if there's you're going through a hard time, go through that hard time together as a family. It brings you mm-hmm. closer because when you get past it, which you do with everything yeah. in life, you, you have to get past it. At least you have each other. Because then 100%. if you come back together after everything's happened, then you're still having to spend time to try to put pieces back together. You know? One, 100%. I completely agree with you. Um, I always use this kind of like metaphor of what happened. We all witnessed the car crash in our lives. And all of us walked away different. Mm-hmm. We all witnessed it and everyone lived their, in their own truth. Some of us were um, affected in every way possible. Like, uh, I can't really preach that we all became college educated and we lived our life. And this and that. I know it took a harder toll on my brothers, being that the male figure was taken away. And now a woman... Keep in mind that I think I've told you this before. My mom wears a naqab. For the people that are listening that don't know what a naqab is, it's a certain veil that covers the face and only like leaves the exposes the um, eyes. So she had to. that for how long? I would say since she was 18, and I think my mom is well into her late 40s, maybe 50s. You know, I think she's in her 50s. So um, she's been wearing it all her life. And keep in mind that do you think people are willing to hire? <laughs> A naqabi walking into her your office with I, I zero. Imagine, I imagine it's not been easy. <laughs> it has not been easy for her. Um, with on top of that, she's she has no what is it called? At the time, she had zero work experience because she was busy raising her six kids. She had a husband. That was, yeah, she had a husband providing for her. What? Why did she need to work? She didn't need to work. But luckily, there's a lot of people in the community. God bless them that gave my mom volunteer positions. So they could be some sen- some sort of reference on her CVs when she later on developed one. She had to go through multiple volunteer opportunities and internships before she landed um, a caregiving job to um, people with like Down syndrome and that kind of sort. And is that what she does today? Till this day, my mom works um, as a caregiver for them. And it's been 11 years. She's been loyal to the company. I won't say the company's name, but she's been there. Um, she had, uh, what is it called, a day shift, but it kind of got hard. Because keep in mind that if you're a parent and you're expected to make breakfast, take your kids to school, we all are in multiple age groups, you know, drop them all off and then get to work. It got to a point where she couldn't handle it. So my mom was like, you know what, I'm going to stay with you guys in the day and I'm going to start working at night. So my mom worked graveyard shift. And she still works graveyard shift for the last, say, 10 years now. I know. So, and then later on, she opened up her own business in home daycare just to kind of supplement the incomes and so she can afford everything. That's pretty remarkable. She she did what she mm-hmm. needed to do to mm-hmm. take care of you guys. And that's. 
Yeah. And the sacrifices that mothers make for their kids sometimes it's I know. I, we always talk about it and I look at my sister and I always tell her like in all of us kids statistically speaking we weren't supposed to graduate high school, mm-hmm. you know? Let let alone for some of us that ended up going to college, graduate college. Like one of my older sisters, she is what is it called? Um she's now in Utopia and she opened up her own nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. Uh or it's right? It's kinda amazing and it kinda baffles you. She's she's preparing her masters um this uh fall at SOAS and She's pursuing her careers. I went to go into medicine. I have a younger sister that is in New York. She goes to Brooklyn College. And this kind of ties in with the fact that my mom is super conservative and she wears the naqab. And you wouldn't expect someone like her to understand her daughter wanting to go to a college out of state without any parental supervision and live her own life. But my mom, mashallah, being the, the amazing woman that she is, allowed her to go. And allowed her to have the opportunity to become her own person. Because sometimes we live in, like underneath the shadow of our parents. And not the shadow of our parents, but just their way of living for us. Does that and kind of make sense? No, definitely. Are you kidding? You're preaching to the mm-hmm. choir here. I think this is something <laughs> a lot of children of immigrants face. Um, it's mm-hmm. just those expectations of their parents for what their ideal you know, lifestyle is for themselves. They want it for their children, although sometimes those aren't in line and sometimes there's not Mm -hmm. communication to necessarily be like, you know, that's not what I want. And there's not an acceptance. There's not a comfortable, you know, space for, for that conversation to be had. But I want to actually, let's, let's stay on this conversation a little bit because I want to talk about your mom being this really conservative, uh, you know, Naqabi Mm -hmm. woman, and yeah. the dynamic of your your relationship and your sisters, you you know, you mentioned to me before that one of your sisters does not wear the hijab, but yet, yeah, you know, how does that play out with your mom? How's her their relationship? How's that understanding? Because I think pretty, you would think yeah. your mom would be really upset, or maybe they wouldn't have a relationship, right? I know, speaking it from like a cultural standpoint, yeah. You normally, people like if you take off your scarf in our community, you're kicked out. <laughs> You revoke your membership of the Somali community. They just say, hand over the card. Or you decide to self-ostracize and you just kick yourself out because you're like, I know they're going to do this to me. So Might as well do them the favor, you know? I won't even let you guys go through the trouble kind of thing. Yeah, it's important. Um, My mother, subhanAllah, like, being that she's such an open-minded person, being that she's conservative and she wears a naga, I understand I'll give her those titles. But at the same time, that's my, that's, my mother, and she gets it in that sense. Um, my older sister, when we were growing up, I know 100% she struggled with the hijab. And I cannot tell you as to why, but obviously we all go through those phases. I went, went through it myself. Um, and she used to hide it sometimes. She used to not wear it sometimes at school. Then I can see that it turned into like, you know what? I can't live a double lifestyle anymore. Mm-hmm. I need to have this conversation with my mother and let her know that, I do not. I do not want to wear the hijab right now. She didn't say she's not going to wear the hijab ever, ever, ever again, you know. But I remember listening to that conversation, and I just was like, fly on the wall, like, oh my gosh, she's doing it. This girl's crazy. <laughs> I was, I was waiting for her to get kicked out. I was like, oh my gosh, this girl's about to get the boot, you know. I'm about to have a room. I'm about to have a room to myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But subhanAllah, I know my mom said, I raised you right. 
I can't understand as to I do not understand why you wanted to take off the hijab because it's such a beautiful thing like you're you're covering for God you're you're preserving your modesty and so on and so forth but she was like I raised you right I raised you with the right morals the right values I know you're a good person and I can understand obviously this time and my mom is saying obviously this time this generation that we're in and she said you're a young girl inshallah like in the future, you'll take up, take it um, uh, up again. Like you, you start covering, but um, I understand why you you don't want to wear it. So, did this reaction surprise? I mean, I, I'm gonna assume it surprised you because you thought she was getting the boot book. I'm sure. Yeah. I could only imagine your sister had like a sense of relief because. Yeah, she was like, I can't believe this. Like my mom, and Naqabi is really accepting me for me and nothing else. And she's not basing her judgment off of anybody else. Does that make sense? She's being her own parent and not a parent for the masses. Because, you know, we always go by our reputation. And sometimes the things our parents tell us, it doesn't necessarily come from them per se. It comes from the community and and how they wish to parent us. And, like, I don't need you to parent me. I have one parent and I need my parents to speak for themselves. So my mom was like, I'm your mother, I love you, and I know you're a good person, and I raised you right, you know? I hope you're not doing it. One thing she did say that kind of cracked me up was, I hope you're not doing it for a guy. <laughs> okay. I've been there. The, yeah, she's like, let me just ask, is this for a guy? She's like, no, it's just for me. She's like, okay, I accept it. You know, I think the way that I your mom it. handled it is such an example as to, way, as to the way that I think this conversation should be had well one i think yeah. these conversations should be had i think the hijab in general to mm-hmm. i feel like some people fear even saying that they've thought about or that they struggle with it which i think and i don't speak for most people but for most people that i know everyone's had some point in their life where they've struggled with it especially here in the west yeah struggling with whether or not they're wearing it properly struggling whether or not they want to wear it struggling with mm-hmm. just a lot of things and i feel like to be able to, one, have that conversation with, you know, your mother, your father, someone in your family is really, really great. But to have that reaction, I think it's like you're definitely, one, being an example of what Islam teaches us in terms of compassion and patience and, like, being empathetic. And then, two, your sister is not going to have some type of negative reaction because had your mom kind of gone crazy and it could have turned really aggressive and big mm-hmm. and blown up or your sister left you know you're severing those ties in a relationship between a mother and a daughter or a mother a, a, you know a daughter and her family yeah what 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 are the implications of that i mean that person's more than likely going to be pushed away from from dean and, and mm-hmm. islam mm-hmm. more than if you would just be like you know what i accept it you know i don't understand mm-hmm. but i accept it this is your life but still yeah. be that, like, um, you know, that mentor and that presence in your life and that example. Because then that person will, you know, inshallah, if it's, it's written for them, they'll come back around. Yeah. And rem- we have to remember that Islam for us as women is not just based off of our hijab. It's like a girl mm-hmm. takes off her hijab, people immediately think like, oh, she's, she's straying from the religion. She doesn't want to be a Muslim anymore. It's like yeah. you can have 100% of the beliefs and, and practice in ways in which, not, uh, in which hijabis don't. But that doesn't count because it's not something we can see. But I mean, yeah. what's really, religion is a relationship between you and God. You know, it's vertical. Yeah. It's not between you and people. I, I 100% agree with you on that one. 
and I think hijab obviously is a choice at the end of the day. And I think I mentioned this to you before. Prayer is a choice. Like, yeah, there's nothing that we are not automated robots at the time of prayer that we get up and pray. Like we choose whether or Mm -hmm. not we want to take the time to get up to perform wudu to pray, Mm -hmm. or we choose sometimes to not. And the Mm -hmm. hijab is no different, but people treat it differently. We all know as Muslim women that we are supposed to wear hijab. Nobody's going against that. And it's been mentioned in the hadith and the Quran. I'm not saying anything against the doctrine. But at the same time, God gave us something different from shaitans and angels, which is will. We have the will to decide whether we're going to go right or left or whether it may be. And I'm not saying that in an analogy to what my sister's actions were. It's just It was her choice at the end of the day. Nobody was forcing it upon her. And he gave her a more like beautiful understanding of what Islam was and what a parent should be to their child. Yeah. I know if my daughter came to me saying, I don't I want to wear it right now, I would have told her the same thing. I understand. I'm not going to be, oh, you can't live in my household. You're not listening to me. You're being a bad Muslim. How do I know that she's being a bad Muslim? How, like, who am I to make these judgments, whether I'm the parent or not? Whether I'm a random person seeing this Muslim girl walk across the street without a hijab and say, uh, her, her future is gone or she loses credibility. She's not even Muslim. Like, who are you to make those judgments? That's actually really scary. If anything, people like that should be very weary of their actions yeah and just don't like how about we not i guess simplifying deen to just a piece of clothing for women but also like why simplify like deen which is you know this beautiful kind of complex thing in which it is very individual and it's different for everyone everyone practices it differently they have a different relationship a different connection Mm -hmm. why for all women then do you just kind of water it down to this like pieces of clothing that you wear and how how, women are constantly judged by how little or how much they wear of even hijab i'm not even talking about girls that don't wear the hijab i'm talking about girls that wear it in different ways or wear different styles of clothing and stuff we're stratified isn't that crazy if you're fully clothed and you're wearing naqab it means like you're the ultimate muslim (laughs) and and it goes down from there bubble or something i don't know yeah if you're wearing the hijab as like a shayla like around your neck you're a basic Muslim. And if you're wearing hijab as a turban, you're a hipster. You're not even there, Muslim. Like, it's not even fair. You can't stratify someone's iman or deen or just is, just their Islam on the basis of hijab. Some of us, you don't know, someone, someone with a naqab that's fully covered might not be the greatest person in comparison to someone that's completely uncovered. Allah alam, God knows best. Exactly. At the end of the day, it just comes down to... Uh, God can be the only judge because everything is built off of intention and no one yeah. knows anyone's intention but God because that relies on our yep. heart. I think even sometimes our own selves, we don't know exactly what our yeah. intentions are. And that's like a self-struggle is figuring out mm-hmm. like, am I really doing this because I want to or am I doing it because it's coming from some outside influence or, you know what I yeah. mean? Like the way I was conditioned, which I think is part of the, I guess the beauty of deciding things is because yeah. you are conflicted. It's not an easy process, but... Can you imagine, though, living in America, how many girls, how many young Muslim girls are facing this issue? So many. So mm-hmm. many. And the and, sad thing is, is, like, it's not talked about. They don't yeah. talk about it. If they do, it's maybe amongst themselves or with their closest friends. But even then, like, it's, yeah. not, it's not a normal conversation to be having. I it isn't. It can be one day because, you know, you're talking about really in essence the quality of life for someone and you know a lot of people mm-hmm. make the decision to not wear it and they might 
feel like they're living a truer self because at you know they're not doing something that they felt like at that moment they couldn't do but then they lose yeah. so much they lose their family they lose their sense of support from yeah. their community it just it really places them in a hard place and that's not fair that's not what as a community we sh- that's not our that's not how our response should be it should never be that way and it's very important that parents i think it comes from the parents most and the older generation to understand the younger generation or their children in general that you have to allow them to be their own person yeah don't yeah. dictate your child's life trust in yourself as a parent that you raise your child right that you instilled in them the necessary values and tools and that any decision they make is not a reflection on their parenting skills and that they shouldn't feel ashamed or um, bad about their child's decisions if it's outside their own. I think as youth, we need to understand kind of what our parents are going through. Yeah. Just to understand and then better help them understand where we're coming from. And give me the, I always say to my mom, give me the opportunity for me to make the right decision. Yeah. Don't try to like grab my hand and lead me to our direction, it doesn't mean anything anymore because you basically picked it for me, regardless of how it is the the right path for me. But it's better for me to become my own, like autonomous, independent, own thinking person. Like I always try to make that very clear because especially living in America, you're very, you have to be independent. You have to know how to be your own person. You have to stand up for yourself. You're not going to look back and your mom's just going to be in the wings ready to like fix everything for you. Yeah. I, I think in our community and I bet a lot of immigrant community, we have this tendency to almost like baby. Is that the right term? Yeah. Micromanage. Micromanage, a helicopter, like our children. Everything. It's everything. Like, Literally everything. Be- Even after, yeah. um, I mean, it, it it doesn't even matter if you get to the point where you have your own family. They still sometimes yeah. will have that presence or at least yeah. I think there's like effects where children are traumatized and it's like their parents' voices are yeah. still in their heads. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I think is very conflicting for children of immigrants um, is, mm-hmm. for example, I think our cultures, we come from a very communitive type of culture in which, you know, you do everything for your your family and for those that are you know in your in your clan and they would do anything for you and everything that you do is not a representation of yourself it is a representation of everyone so you before you do something you think how's this going to affect my my parents how's it going to affect my siblings how's it going to affect my community there's a lot of pressure but then the western culture is very individualistic in which you know you're 18 you're an adult, you make decisions for yourself, you move out, you, you know, so how do we bring these two worlds together and try to figure out our lives where we grow up understanding this individualistic, like, and and also wanting that as well. I think we want it. I want to be independent. I want to do things for myself, but then having that, that contrast still in our, the background when it comes to from like, you know, our upbringing and from our parents. So I, it's very difficult, I think. It is a very difficult balance. And I think it's a beautiful thing to have, like, a, the balance of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Of being individualistic and being able to think for yourself and everything at the same time. Know that your actions can affect others and how you, your own decisions and your own um, way of living, obviously, is connected to, obviously, your family and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like, this brings me back to the main point, like, 
I think the trauma of everything happening to my dad and my mom being the breadwinner and standing up and like the whole patriarchal system kind of breaking apart in my in my household and there's obviously this matriarch that stepped up made my mom realize like you don't really your decisions in life obviously affect you the most and everyone around you mm -hmm. and if you make the right decisions it reflects outwards and in a very like amazing way so that like trauma that car accident that craziness brought almost like a lot of blessings into our lives it made mm -hmm. us a more well-rounded people in the most twisted way is that a crazy thing to say I, mean, I think it's part of fate and part of understanding yeah that even the bad things happen for a reason you know it's, yeah it's really just having an understanding that at the end of the day everything is really in god's hands and even yeah. the worst of things that happen you have mm -hmm. to understand that there's a purpose for it and that there is <laughs> always going to be some type of outcome and you'll always come out of it on top yeah it, it's it's basically leading you to where you are supposed to be yeah I think in, in my compassion levels for people is I can't describe it it's I can't understand because compassion really means like you can understand someone else's suffering that's what it is mm -hmm. so um a few years back I used to be a college advisor and I remember working in this inner city high school like it was close to the one I graduated with So it's kind of like full circle for me to give back. And I remember all these kids going through all these crazy things. And they're similar to mine. Some kids' parents were de facing deportation for immigra immigration reasons as well. And they didn't know what to do. And I would have some kind of insight for them and comfort and saying, like, You've it's okay. There. Yeah, I've been there. Isn't that kind of crazy? And I don't really share these kind of, like, private, like, details of my, like, life. And a lot of people don't know that my, my family have been through these kinds of things because it's been such a long time it has happened such a long time ago and I remember like explaining to the the student like you're gonna be okay I know it's hard for you guys to understand right now and you feel like your world's ending but it's okay your mom like just like my mom she didn't know that she had that strength in her and I know that my mom didn't have that strength in her she didn't and then all of a sudden all these all, all these crazy things happen and then all of a sudden you find some kind of strength in you to step up and handle it and it's a beautiful thing that you've been able to provide mm -hmm. that type of support for mm -hmm. those people. And you said that you don't really share this, mm -hmm. you know, these private matters with people, especially because it's been so long and I'm sure it's not yeah. something that's regularly brought up. But I guess um, to close off, why why did you want to share it now? Or like, why, why did you want to put this, share your story, yeah. share your family's story? And what do you hope that people listening can gain from yeah. it? Yeah, you know... I'm a recent college graduate, and, and it was all due to my mom's sacrifices. And in terms of the, the, life, the unique life experiences that I have and the situations that I've been to, um, I don't, I'm not supposed to be here, but I am here. And I'm still figuring it out, and I'm still trying to find my way in this world as a young Muslim, American, Canadian. And even through tragedy and craziness, subhanAllah, like, Everything works out. Everything is in like in a divine like web and that you might go through these like routes in life and it might take you off through your road, but you always come back and that you're always going to do what you're supposed to do here. And I know this is the side of me that's like the Muslim or that's speaking, but I'm a very big believer in that. And I really am sharing this experience because I know there's a Muslim family or an immigrant family or just any American family out there that listening that might be facing like one parent's arrested or something or they're coming from a single parent household or they 
they might be struggling somehow. I just mean to say, to give some positivity. SubhanAllah, like, if I replay it, because every time I speak of these things, it's kind of like I'm reliving it, you know? And you're sitting there like, oh my, my gosh, like, I'm, I, I kind of baffle myself because it's so shocking. Like, wow, I really was in that courthouse. Wow. You know, sometimes certain traumas become a dreamlike. Um, I can't say we all fully gotten over it. I think everyone kind of got hit with some kind of like shell shock from it. But we're all dealing with it. We're all managing and we're all trying to be like a part of society and we're trying to make a better world. I know that for my sister. I know that for my brothers. I know everyone that has been through what we've been through in our household and is just trying to make it basically, you know, and try to get to the relatability of the, of the greater audience that might be listening, you know, as a Muslim Obviously, I'm going to be discriminated against and profiled, and I might face Islamophobia, xenophobia. But alhamdulillah, I've been through so much in my life that I know how to handle. I know how to deal. I know. It's made you someone with thicker skin and just a stronger, confident person. Exactly. I've I've seen so much tragedy in my life that, to some sense, I'm always expecting it. So when goodness comes, I'm like. I'm a little weary. Oh my You're God. cynical. What cynical. I'm like, what is this happiness? What are, what are you talking about? <laughs> when are you going to leave me? <laughs> I need tragedy to come back. It's like almost a comfort, right? Knowing yeah. being in that place of tragedy, it's kind of like, I'm used yeah. to this. I know how to deal with this. So when something good comes, you're almost like, what am I supposed yeah. to do with this? I want to yeah. really, truly thank you for mm-hmm. um, opening up and sharing this and obviously taking the time, but I really, I mean, I believe that when we share our stories, um, when we open our lives up just a little bit, I know in our cultures, it's very taboo to talk about our flaws and the issues that we face, especially as families. But I think Mm -hmm. it's so powerful when you can share your story because there is someone out there listening. And even if it's just one person that can listen and relate, or you've helped or comforted them, that is, is, it's completely worth it. And that's why Mm -hmm. I wanted to start this. And that's why I, continue want you know wanting to do it even if it's hard sometimes it's like you're helping mm-hmm. one person you're helping 10 people like that's powerful it's a beautiful thing so thank you so it much is. um again well, thank you so much for having me and, and i feel like i've gained allowed... a new friend over the months of us talking and <laughs> we're only like four hours away so we definitely have i to, know we're gonna you have, must to, definitely have to come to, to come, san diego have to come to you I mean, yeah. I would say you come to me, but there's nothing much going on in the Central Valley, so I don't think you yeah. come here. But I'll definitely come to you. You can, I don't know, find me some vegan restaurants I can eat at. I most we'll definitely have a list for you, inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> but this has been really therapeutic. Like, going through everything, you kind of just kind of, you obviously relive it, but you kind of realize, like, subhanAllah, like, I've come so far. No personal statement, no personal testimony can ever do justice to what anyone really goes through. But just mm. being able to really share it yeah. and, like, and I get like feedback from it and just understanding and love and uh, uh, compassion is just like an amazing thing. I'm just always like, I know everyone has a unique story. Like you said, everyone has a story and it's a beautiful, it's amazing when you have a platform to share it because someone might hear it and might relate to it or yeah. m- might get like Definitely. guidance from it. Definitely. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad that it's been a positive experience for you. If it wasn't, mm-hmm. I think I'd be worried, but positive experience. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. And again, thank you. Inshallah, inshallah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening in and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to like and follow this Muslim Girl podcast on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also check out the blog thismuslimgirl.com where you can find all content information from this and all previous episodes. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.